I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. In the 2020 book, From Here to Equality, William Darity Jr. and Kirsten Mullen write that wealth is the best single indicator of the cumulative impact of white racism over time. How big is the racial difference in wealth? Every three years, the Federal Reserve publishes its survey of consumer finances. In the 2019 edition, it presents statistics on net worth by race, and the results are stunning. The average net worth of white households is $983,000, while that of black households is $143,000. 25% of white households have a net worth of over $1 million, but only 4% of black households have a net worth that big. There are many antecedents to this outcome. Chattel slavery, of course, and subsequently Jim Crow laws and current forms of racial discrimination. Professor Darity and Ms. Mullen write that blacks cannot close the racial wealth gap by independent or autonomous action and accordingly make the case in their book for reparation payments. What are the arguments for reparations? How big should they be and who should receive them? To answer these questions, I'm very pleased to welcome to Econofact Chats, Professor Darity. Sandy Darity is a Samuel Du Bois Cook Distinguished Professor of Public Policy at Duke University. He's widely recognized as a leading scholar on the issues of inequality and the economics of reparations. Among his honors is the Samuel Z. Westerfield Award in 2012, the highest award conferred from the National Economic Association. Sandy, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thank you for having me. Sandy, a central theme in economics is what's called opportunity cost, what somebody gives up by undertaking a certain action. As I read your book, I thought of the concept of opportunity benefit, what the American economy gained through the repression of black Americans, not only through the obvious means of the enslaved on plantations in the South, but also through slavery in the rest of the country and perhaps less obviously to people today, through companies that benefited from slavery, through, for example, cheap cotton for northern textile manufacturers, New England shipping companies, and companies that insured slaveholders. You could argue that there was a hothouse effect that was associated with the economy that was anchored on the exploitation of enslaved labor in the southern states primarily. Much of the northern enslaved labor was devoted to domestic service purposes. Although in the state of Connecticut, uh, for a substantial period of time, there were, there were farms that would be the equivalent of southern plantations where enslaved imported Africans were working uh, at, at no wages and at the direct behest of the the individuals who held them as human property. But for the most part, the production of crops with the use of enslaved labor took place in the southern states. But those southern states were linked 
to the industrial sector in the north. As you mentioned, of course, the cotton sector was vital for the development of the textile industry in the north. The cotton trade was central to the development of, uh, of, of Wall Street, for example, in New York City. And at one point, the mayor of New York City, uh, at the stage in which the southern states were engaged in a process of secession from the Union, the mayor of New York City uh, actually proposed that the city also should join the secession because of its intimate links to the cotton trade. So, yes, it's quite arguable and it's quite reasonable to argue that the economic development of the country as a whole was closely linked to the exploitation of enslaved labor. In terms of the consequences in the present moment, I think we need to think more about the benefits being racially divided so that the opportunity benefit that you're talking about is something that's happening primarily for white Americans to the disadvantage of black Americans. So this idea of opportunity benefit, along with some basic ideas of restorative justice, would argue for reparations. But let's first begin with some broader review of reparations. There are cases of reparation payments, both in this country and from other countries. For example, my grandfather, who fled Germany in 1938, was paid reparations by the German government after World War II. But this was not so much for any economic benefit to the Nazi-era German economy, rather than to right or wrong. So that's one example. What are some others? There are several examples, but the one that's probably most salient to the comparison with the case for reparations for black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved here is the provision of reparations to Japanese Americans for being subjected to mass incarceration during the course of World War II. This is a, an act of reparations that was embodied in the American Civil Liberties Act of 1988 where each of the individuals who had been subjected to incarceration received a $20,000 monetary payment. And that might not sound like a lot, but if you were to convert that into a present value calculation, it would be about sixty dollars to $80,000 in the current moment. And you have to keep in mind that each individual who was paid was typically part of a family unit that was jointly interned. And so uh, you could think about there being the possibility of the equivalent of $120,000 to $120,000 payments to $240,000 payments per family uh, as a consequence of, uh, of, this, of this act of reparations. But I, I think that's the example that is most similar to the dimensions of the type of plan that we have in mind that would be relevant to black American descendants of U.S. slavery. But then even more so, those Japanese who were interred during World War II did not benefit the U.S. economy, whereas enslaved African Americans did. So there was a benefit to the economy as a whole from enslavement that the Japanese interred during World War II did not provide to the economy. But the primary case we make for reparations, though, is not centered on the benefits to the U.S. economy of the various atrocities that have been visited on black Americans. The case we make is associated with the, uh, the deprivation of opportunity and the deprivation of well-being that has been imposed on black Americans. So we're thinking more about the cost side of the ledger 
than the benefit side of the ledger. But of course, you can make the argument that the fact that there were Americans who benefited from these atrocities further justifies compensation of those who were harmed in the process. So looking only at the cost side is then sort of a lower bound, isn't it? The cost side would be the lower bound, but it would be a very important lower bound given the, uh, the degree of opportunity that was lost and the number of lives that were lost in the process of the evolution of American racism. So there was an initial idea of reparations right after the Civil War. Freed slaves were supposed to receive 40 acres and a mule, but that didn't happen, did it? No. In the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, General Sherman and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton met with a group of black leaders in Savannah, Georgia. And the question that they posed for this group of black leaders was what should be done? with the black community in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. At that stage, they expected that the Union would, in fact, be victorious. And uh, this group of 20 men appointed uh, a gentleman named Garrison Frazier to be their spokesperson. And Garrison Frazier told Stanton and Sherman that what the community of black people needed most was to have land and otherwise to largely be left alone. Within about four days after that meeting, Sherman issued Special Field Orders Number 15, which uh, assigned approximately 5.3 million acres of land to the formerly enslaved. That 5.3 million acres of land stretched from the Sea Islands of South Carolina to northern Florida at the border of the St. Johns River. Frequently, people think that uh, it was a much smaller amount that was actually assigned, but in fact, it was a much smaller amount that was actually distributed, about 400,000 acres to 40,000 of the formerly enslaved. That's 40,000 persons out of 4 million people who were newly emancipated. The 5.3 million acres was meant essentially as a down payment on a much larger allocation, which was to have approached at least 40 million acres of land for the full complement of individuals who had been recently emancipated. Uh, But what happened? Well, 400,000 acres were given to 40,000 people, and even that small portion of the full allotment that Sherman had designated was taken back from those individuals and restored to the former slaveholders at the behest of uh, President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor after Lincoln was murdered. And so the 40 acres were never delivered to the formerly enslaved. At the same time, though, the federal government was providing 160-acre land grants to one and a half million white families in the Western territories as the nation completed its colonial settler project under the terms of the Homestead Act of 1862. And uh, we argue in, in From Here to Equality that that's essentially the beginning of the creation of the racial wealth gap, the provision of a substantial asset to large number of white families, while black families emerging from slavery were given absolutely nothing. And then subsequently in the Jim Crow era, and even in the modern era, there continued to be lots of disparities that were racially based. And that would also feed into the harm that you were discussing in terms of the size of reparations, correct? 
That's correct. And uh, I would include among those harms and disparities that continue to perpetuate the racial wealth differential and extend it, I would include the 100 or so massacres that took place from the end of the Civil War to the 1940s, in which Black lives were taken in communities across the country, and Black property was appropriated and seized by the terrorists. Uh, I think the most familiar example for many people would be the Tulsa massacre of 1921. Yeah, we had Lisa Cook on the show to discuss that and her work and the way that which that massacre affected not just the people at that time, but cast a very long shadow and reduced black entrepreneurship and black innovation subsequently. Yes. Uh, and, and Lisa's research is about the effects on innovation and patents of white violence in the United States, innovation and patents by black Americans. But in addition to the massacres as a site in which black property was, was appropriated and then seized, we have in the 20th century a shift in government policy away from a focus on land distribution as a mechanism for asset building to home ownership. And uh, the policies that the federal government pursued in the 20th century to promote homeownership were discriminatorily applied. They were discriminatorily applied in the form of redlining, uh, which was a public-private partnership conducted by the Federal Housing Administration and local banks that essentially starved black homeowners or potential black homeowners of sufficient credit. We had another uh, Econofact Chats with Eduardo Porter of the New York Times in which he discusses his book, American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. And part of our discussion was the way in which the post-World War II programs excluded blacks. And the reason that was done was because there was a concern that Southern Democrats would not vote for those programs. Yeah, the most uh, pronounced example of that would be the uh, GI Bill which had provisions for not only education, but also for home ownership and business development. And while there were discriminatory differences in the application of the educational provisions, the most extreme discriminatory differentials were associated with the home ownership and the, and the business development pr- provisions. And that, yes, and that was done precisely because Uh, Southern Democrats would not have supported the legislation unless they would have decentralized authority over the administration of the program. And it was that decentralization that both in the North and the South resulted in discriminatory treatment of black veterans. And the GI Bill was seen as one of the great levelers, but it turns out it was only a great leveler for white Americans, not for the population as a whole. That's exactly right. So Sandy, recently the idea of reparations was boosted by an article in The Atlantic by Tanasi Coates, but there's actually a long history behind reparations, one that you document in From Here to Equality. These tended to be more about specific incidents though, correct? Well, I I think that the history of reparations was largely focused initially on claims that individuals made for the harms that had been imposed upon them directly. So one example of this would be a court case in the the late 18th century that took place uh, in, in Boston where a woman named Belinda brought forth a lawsuit 
concerning her deprivation of compensation or payment for the years of service that she engaged in as an enslaved person. But I think by the time we get to the end of the Civil War, the focus is on a notion of kind of collective harm and collective compensation. That was the premise behind the promise of the 40 acres and a mule that was never delivered. Uh, And then subsequently, Callie House, in the latter part of the 19th century, leads a movement for pension payments to be made to individuals who were formerly enslaved. And so this is a mass movement. And the idea is that every individual who had been subjected to slavery would receive a government pension that would be comparable to the pensions that were provided to veterans of the Civil War. And so this was not a matter of trying to itemize uh, the harms to individuals. This was a matter of saying that there was a community that had been collectively damaged and so should be Uh, compensated accordingly. And I think after that, uh, much of the focus of reparations initiatives has been on uh, on collective harm. I will say there is a, a recent exception, and it's an unfortunate exception, which is a tendency that is underway for some local communities and municipalities to set up their own reparations programs. Now, the reason I say this is unfortunate is because it's impossible for these communities collectively or singly to actually meet the bill that would be associated with eliminating the racial wealth gap in the United States. Uh, We estimate now that it would cost about $14 trillion to erase the racial wealth differential. And unfortunately, the states and localities in the United States collectively have a budget of about $3.1 trillion. So it would be impossible for them to meet that bill. And so there's kind of an element of shadow boxing associated with the claim that you can have a local reparations program. Um, and, And I think that that local reparations initiative is predicated on the view that there were very specific harms that were localized that would uh, justify these communities taking action. But in fact, the the whole structure of harm associated with white supremacy in the United States has never been localized. It's been national in scope. And the ramifications of events that occurred in a local level usually went far beyond that that locality. Uh, You mentioned uh, Lisa Cook's work on Tulsa. And one of the key points that she made was that the massacre there had effects and implications for conditions in other parts of the country. Uh, And that was always the case with the massacres, that they had a resonance and an impact on what was taking place in other parts of the United States. So this is a national problem, and it requires a national solution. So you bring up the figure of $14 trillion. Who would be eligible for payments, and how do you foresee them being made if this were to come to pass? The eligibility criteria that we advance in our book, uh, From Here to Equality, the eligibility criteria are twofold. First, uh, an individual would have to demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. And second, they would have to demonstrate that on a legal or official document for at least 12 years before the enactment of a reparations plan or the enactment of a commission to study reparations at the federal level, 
that they self-identified as Black, Negro, African-American, or Afro-American. So the, the first criterion is what we refer to as a lineage standard, and the second criterion is what we refer to as an identity standard. An individual would have to meet both of those conditions to be eligible to receive reparations. Now, what form would reparations take? Well, we favor direct payments to individuals who are eligible and direct payments in an equal amount to each individual. And this is a a strategy that we think is appropriate as a consequence of our examination of other cases in which reparations have been paid. They're fairly consistently uh, group-based reparations have taken the form of direct payments to individual members of the eligible community. In the penultimate chapter of From Here to Equality, you anticipate a number of arguments against reparations, and then you address those. And I'd like to go through just a few of them. So first, one is that slavery occurred long ago. Your response to that? Two responses. One response is that the ramifications and effects of slavery persist. And associated with that response is the fact that the case that we make in the pages of From Here to Equality is not limited to the harms of slavery. And in fact, we place a tremendous emphasis on the importance of nearly a century of legal segregation in the United States, accompanied by the 100 or so massacres that I mentioned earlier. Uh, And we also talk about ongoing atrocities, including mass incarceration of, uh, of black Americans, police killings of unarmed black Americans. We also talk about uh, employment discrimination, discrimination in credit markets, discrimination in housing. And then, of course, there's the paramount condition that is the, uh, is the guiding light for our approach to eliminating the racial wealth gap, which is is the immense racial wealth gap itself. So it's not just, in quotes, just slavery that is on the ledger. And then the, the last point that I'd like to make in this context is actually, if you think about this from a generational standpoint, and this is a key point we make in the book, uh, slavery wasn't actually that long ago. We even talk about the example of of Hortense McClinton, who was the first uh, black faculty member at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, whose father was born in January 1865 in Texas as an enslaved person. So that Ms. McClinton is actually one generation removed from slavery. Kirsten Mullen, my co-author, is three generations removed from slavery because her grandmother was the daughter of a man who had been enslaved. So from a generational perspective, uh, slavery is not that distant in time, and its effects are still very much uh, present, in large part because there was a failure to provide the formerly enslaved with any type of compensation in the aftermath of the Civil War. Isn't there a Faulkner quote, something to the effect of the past is not gone, it's not even past? Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, your answer really addressed some of the other points that you brought up in that penultimate chapter. One was that the reparations to Holocaust victims and interred Japanese Americans were made directly to the victims, but slavery and Jim Crow reparations would be made to the descendants, but you've addressed that point already. And Finally, just the point that 
Uh, blacks have, in effect, received reparations through social safety net programs and affirmative action. I think Eduardo Porter's book and your answer really points out that that has not been disproportionate. And in fact, a lot of these programs explicitly excluded African-Americans from them. So just to close off, Sandy, we've discussed the economic and the moral case for this. What do you see as a political possibility? And this is in full acknowledgement that we as economists really don't understand politics very well. But what do you see as a political possibility of this? Yeah, I think both of us became economists because we we didn't think that we understood politics particularly. No, no, never made sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so let, let me try to give a shot at this. Um, I think that the most important piece of information that I can provide in the context of thinking about the political possibilities is to, to share some statistics about change in opinion about reparations, particularly among white Americans. And when I refer to opinions about reparations, I'm talking about people's response to a question that asks them whether or not they support monetary payments to black Americans as reparations. And so in the year 2000, when a couple of University of Chicago's uh, academics, Michael Dawson and Ravana Popoff, did a survey of American attitudes, they found that 4%, that's F-O-U-R, of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations. Uh, by the year 2018, that percent, percentage had risen to 16. In the year 2020, the figure had come closer to 25 to 27%. And the most recent surveys that I'm familiar with from the year 2021 placed the figure at about 30%. So uh, even though we're nowhere close to a majority of white Americans supporting black reparations, we're in a very different situation, a much more hospitable situation than we were at the beginning of the 21st century. So that's my grounds for optimism. Okay, so as an economist, we can understand these numbers, and that's a pretty striking change over the course of a few decades. And maybe, you know, maybe your book has helped foster some of that change as well. So I want to thank you very much for speaking with me today on this really important and very compelling topic. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk with you. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. The Conifact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.